0: You're listening to RevOps FM with Justin Norris. Welcome to RevOps FM everyone. You know there's a time in every marketing ops professional's life when they wonder if the grind of an in-house job is worth it after all. Whether it's the politics, overwork, lack of resources, lack of respect, a toxic boss, a million other things, It might make you think, maybe I'd just be happier as a consultant. You consider the allure of setting your own hours, working with multiple companies, more independence, maybe better money too. So the question is, should you do it? How should you get started? And what's involved in taking the plunge? And today's guests have both been there and back again, working on the agency side, the client side, and now founders of their own agency called Emmy Collective. They're two of the very best in the business and also host the Pretty Funny Business podcast, which you should definitely check out. I'm very glad to welcome my friends, Lauren Aquilino and Sydney Mulligan to the show. So glad to have you both here today. And I really just want to start out with like the genesis of Emmy Collective. How did you two get together? How did this whole thing get started? Tell me about that.
1: We operate very much in the moment and opportunistically. Is what I would call it. So I have never really been a person that has like a 10 year plan for my career or anything. I'm just like figuring it out as I go and doing what seems like the best opportunity in the moment. So this was not like an, a long term goal of mine to start an agency. And I don't know whether or not it was of Lawrence, but we came to be because I got laid off while I was on maternity leave, a vintage 2022 layoff. And Lauren already kind of had a idea. So maybe you want to talk about the genesis of your idea.
2: Yeah. So um, I had, you know, COVID kind of wrecked everyone's lives, put everyone on new pathways. Um, And so during that time, I was like homeschooling a second grader and a kindergartner and a one-year-old, which I never thought I would be doing. But I took a little bit of side work with two clients that were two friends of mine, it ended up being more work than I wanted to do on my own. And so I subcontracted some of that work to a handful of people, um, most of who were moonlighting, but there was one person who ended up like quitting their full-time job. Even though they knew it was gonna be like part-time with me, they uh, had a a skincare business that they wanna focus on. Nikki, she's still with us. And at the time I was like, don't quit your job. This is not like a real thing. Like I cannot be responsible for like someone's mortgage. I just need Salesforce help every once in a while. And she's like, no, this is actually perfect. And so we had like a little, just like a tiny baby agency, I guess. We were not doing any marketing or sales or anything. It was just like, these two clients are two clients and we're going to stay here. That is until I saw Sydney's post about her layoff on LinkedIn. Like she was just saying about opportunities. I was like, oh my gosh, like, if there was a person I was going to do something with, it would be Sydney. And she and I did not know each other. So this is like a weird take to have. No, we were virtual strangers.
0: <laughs> Why was Sydney the one? Why did you think that if you didn't know her?
2: We had a lot of mutual friends. So I was at Revenue Pulse and she was at a Tumos. And we were both there very early. Like There were like three guys and me at Revenue Pulse. And there was like three guys and her or at a Tumos. Three guys, me and one other woman at a
1: Tumos. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So like, I I knew that we had very similar like career trajectories that she had consulting experience. I did somehow follow her on Instagram. So I knew like, she had young kids like I did. She had some like, religious trauma, like I did, like, you know, all of the things that you typically want to build a business around. So she had posted like, I got laid off on maternity leave, I'm looking for work. But like, mind you, Justin, this was in February. And she was like, but also I'm going to be on maternity leave. Till, till August, so for me I was actually like, this is actually perfect timing because if we were gonna do something, like I don't quite have enough client work to like actually hire her yet. Sydney was very like I would love for us to get an story, but Sydney was like very adamant about being an employee and like having a consistent paycheck at this point in time. Um, and I was like, oh like, okay, yep, yeah, I can do this. It's gonna mean that I don't get paid. But if I want to like invest in this scenario, then this is what it's going to have to be.
0: I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Knack. You know, I love marketing automation software, but let's be honest, the email and landing page builders are usually terrible. You can't make it nice without a developer and marketers are going to find a way to break things or go off brand. You do not have time for that. So Knack is totally different. You set the guidelines and then give your users a building experience that's slick, modern and beautiful. When they're done, everything goes to your map at the push of a button. And don't worry, it supports global teams, approval workflows. It's got your integrations. So head on over to revops.fm forward slash That's K-N-A-K. And get a special offer just for my listeners.
1: At the time, I was like experiencing trauma. I live in New York City. I was a very high cost of living area. I had at the time a two and a half year old and a newborn. I got laid off six weeks into my six month maternity leave from a company that I joined and planned to camp out at for a long time because they had incredible benefits for parents. They were paying for my child care for my son. They were about to start paying for my child care for my daughter when I went back to work. I was on a six month fully paid maternity leave. I had another child because I have created the perfect situation where I can take on the financial cost of another child. And then I lost my job. And separately my husband also lost his job at the same time. So I, more than anything, needed stability. Like I was not in a place where I could take a risk. I needed income. I was also fortunate, even though obviously it sucked that I got laid off while I was on maternity leave. And also people often respond to that by saying, like, is that even legal? And I will just caveat, first of all. In America, yes, it is absolutely legal. Secondly, my daughter came three weeks early, so I actually missed my one-year anniversary at the company by two days before I went out on leave, and uh, FMLA protection only covers you if you've been with the company for a year, and FMLA actually does not cover a mass layoff event anyway, so I don't think it really would have mattered, but they were as generous as they possibly could have been in what was objectively a terrible situation to put me in they kept me for my full maternity leave so my last day with the company was actually the day that I was scheduled to go back to work and then they gave me a little bit of severance they still paid for my son's childcare while I was on leave so frankly like of course it was a bad situation but so many people have been laid off since then in so much worse situations that I hate to really harp on it too much but at the time Absolutely traumatic. Lauren slides into my Instagram DMs and is like, tell me about your hopes and dreams. What do you want to do with your life? And I was like, this woman does not understand what I need right now. It is not this. I need to tell her a number to make her go away. (laughs) And I told her how much money I wanted. And she was like, okay. And I was like, okay. All right. Well, we can keep talking. And I had other interviews lined up. I actually, I got two other job offers. I reached out to Lauren and I was like, you know, if we're actually going to talk about building a company together, then we should probably meet in person and I can just come to Cleveland and I'll bring Ellie with me and we can hash it out. And Lauren was like, no, Cleveland sucks. Let's go to Florida.
2: Which like for the record also sucks, but it was sunny and warm.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was like March (laughs) in Cleveland when we were having this discussion. It's like not great weather in New York either. So sure, let's just go to Siesta Key.
0: I think you made the right call to go to Florida.
1: A thousand percent. We stayed in a mermaid themed Airbnb. I brought my newborn with me. We went to the beach. We had a great time. But Lauren's whole idea was that she wanted to build an agency for freelancers. And I was like, well great news. Uh, I absolutely am not going to be a freelancer. And I don't really understand why I would build a business around freelancers because it's something that terrifies me. I'm like not interested. And we talked about it a lot more. And, you know, eventually we got to the place where we want Emmy Collective to be a place that makes it easy to be a freelancer. There are so many extremely talented independent consultants already out there and more and more joining all the time. All of the things that terrified me about being a freelancer, we want to try to make easier for people that are interested in taking that step. So for me, like I did not want to get sucked into spending so much time doing things that I wasn't getting paid for, like sitting in sales calls that went nowhere and chasing down someone's account payable, whatever, having to deal with all this paperwork just to like get any sort of income, not something I was interested in managing for myself. So that's something that we do at Emmy. Like we handle all of that for our consultants for any of the work that they're taking through us. I loved working at a TUMOS. I love working at an agency. But especially in the beginning, it was very scary to be on a client call and have them ask me a question and not know what to say, not feel like I could really give them a good answer. I felt comfortable in that situation because I knew I could go back to my team and I could say to my client, like, oh, I need to do some more research on that. Like, let me talk to my team and I'll get back to you. If I was on my own, I imagine I would feel much more afraid of that kind of scenario where there's really no team for me to fall back on. It's more, what research can I do? What can I charge you by the hour to Google (laughs) until I figure it out? So Emmy, like we try to provide the best of both worlds, right? Like We have the whole collective behind our consultants. If they need help with something, if they need coverage for something, if they just need to brainstorm with somebody, they have access to the whole team.
2: And most
1: importantly, everyone gets paid for it.
2: And when you're at a traditional agency as well, you get handed your work and you are an employee. So the expectation is like X amount of billable hours. You're working 40 hours a week, typically. And like I mentioned, it's like, okay, and here's the client for you. And you don't really have a lot of say in that. And so being a freelancer, you're like, oh, I get to like, say no, if I don't want to take that job and I can work only 20 hours a week if I want that for myself, So we like are able to make that a comfortable place to like still be that way while having the team like Sydney mentioned.
0: So you had this vision of an agency of freelancers, you know, ostensibly threads the needle of giving the best of both worlds, both to you folks, to me as the agency at the front of it and to the people working for it. So it's a really interesting concept. I found that very novel and I, maybe there's someone else out there that's done it, but I haven't really seen it. I'm just curious has it been everything that you hoped and dreamed? Like, are you onto something really good? Has there been any challenges with this that you didn't expect?
1: You know, we don't want to set a revenue goal. I don't want to. I want to take the opportunities that make sense for us as they come along. And I don't say that to mean that we are like not forward-looking or we don't try to anticipate where the business is going to go or we're not being proactive. We are doing all those things to the best of our ability, but we're not holding ourselves to some sort of goal, like rather arbitrary metric that we have to meet. Uh, So I think for us, the most challenging and surprising thing in the first year was how quickly it took off. We did way more business in year one than I ever expected us to do. I thought maybe we would hit this level in year three or year four or year five, maybe. Um, But, you know, it's really resonated with consultants. We have a bench a mile long of people who want to consult with us, which is great. There are tons of really wonderful independent consultants out there right now. And we have not put a lot of effort into marketing up to this point. We're planning to this year, but we've done our podcast and we did Mopsapalooza and, and that was really it for our marketing efforts so far. Um, but so much of our business is referral based and network based. And Lauren and I have been in this space for long enough that we have good enough networks that have just really taken off and uh, supported our business up to this point. So it was working out just fine. It was working out a little too well in some ways, Justin. I didn't want to work this hard, but here we are.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, that's the story that you want to have. And what I think a lot of people do seem to experience when they take that plunge, and we can talk about that. But first, I'm curious, and you've alluded to it a little bit already, if someone is making the switch into consulting, there are some pros and cons of becoming an indie with or without the Emmy Collective umbrella over you versus joining an agency. All three of us have had that experience. Let's just elaborate a little. Like if someone is making that decision, what's the kind of diagnostic for them to tell? Like, where do I fit best of those options?
1: I would say if you have never consulted before, if you're looking to learn and need a little bit more coaching, being independent will be a real struggle. And to be perfectly honest, we don't really work with consultants at that level. Like we don't take on junior consultants, even at like a lower rate, we don't really take on people who are new to this and require a lot of coaching. It's just not really what our business model is. I think there's actually also some legal stuff related to having contractors and subcontracting them out in this way. Like you just can't do that with people who require coaching. So if you were at that stage, I absolutely recommend you go look at a more traditional agency, it's something that they are really good at. I know that that was an experience that I really valued getting at Tumos was joining when I was still relatively new in my career. I had enough expertise to be able to manage client work enough, but really learned a ton. And I imagine that you had a similar experience at Prokudo, although I'd be curious to hear. But it is not something that you can step into lightly. The soft skills of consulting are really challenging to learn in a vacuum. If you don't have someone who can kind of coach you through what you are supposed to say to a client when they ask you a question and you don't know the answer, or when you're like not getting enough work from them to fulfill your hours, all these sticky client situations are really hard to navigate. And if you were just completely by yourself in your home with no one that you're working with, it will be a struggle. In that scenario, I would say go to an agency. But when you're at the place that Warren is, and I am, and Courtney McCarr is, and Jeff Castellane is, and all these really wonderful consultants that are independent, where you have an incredible network, and you've already established yourself as an expert in your own right, and you really don't need the brand of an agency to float you, you will have more flexibility, you will make more money, you will have a better time being on your own, and it will probably not be as hard as you are imagining it might be.
0: I'll respond to the implicit question there about, was my experience the same in it? To some extent, it also touches on the higher order question. You know, we were just talking about should you go independent or should you go into an agency? And that also already presupposes that you've made a decision about consulting in general versus in-house. And my experience, you know, I was uh, at that point, maybe like five years into my career, maybe three years in MOPS, and had reached a place where I think many people reach perhaps in, in smaller companies more so, where you're like, I think I'm capped at what I can actually contribute to this company. Like I really like this thing that I'm doing. I want to continue to learn and grow. But the company doesn't necessarily need that much more in this area. And also the level of recognition and sort of reward that I can get for being this expert in this company is kind of limited. And so I think it's natural then that you think, well maybe I'll I'll see what that's like. And then the imposter syndrome kind of sets in because you're like, well I'm really good at XYZ, but I've never done ABC and are they going to know that I'm a complete and total fraud? Because I've never, you know, worked with a lifecycle modeler in Marketo before or, or something like that. And it was a small agency. Like, I think, you know, I joined Percudo seven or eight people, like maybe similar to when you, you joined a Tumos or when you joined a new But I think the answer is that you figure it out. And consulting for me, was just like the perfect thing at that point in time. It's like, oh, I'm actually just getting celebrated and rewarded for doing this thing that I really like to do. And if you're the type of person that just likes to figure things out, give me the hard projects, let me solve those challenges. And that was super exciting. So yeah, there was certainly like a level of support there, just knowing that it's okay to not know in some ways, because maybe nobody else knows, and you're all just like, everyone's figuring it out. But yeah, I think that was certainly helpful. I never had the experience of being an independent. And quite frankly, the thought of, you know, everyone has that thought from time to time. Should I just go and hang up my shingle and be an independent? You're The immediate thought that comes, but what if no one comes to your door? What if there's no work? And you hear everybody say like, oh, we just have so much more work there. Like like it just sort of magically appears. But I think it's always a bit mysterious until you take that step about how that's actually going to happen.
1: Yeah. To your point about being in-house and kind of hitting that threshold of I've gotten all I'm going to get out of this experience. I think that as back when you joined Perkuto and Lauren, when you joined Revenue Pulse, when I joined Atumos. Marketing ops was a new enough field that there wasn't such a defined career path. And we were all kind of figuring it out as we went, like, where does this end? What am I going to be able to do? I think now with enough hindsight, we can see like, there are just frankly, not a lot of companies that have a VP of marketing ops. There are directors of marketing ops now reliably, there are some senior directors, but you're still as a technical resource going to hit a cap on what level you can read. And maybe that's fine for you. Uh, You can either kind of hang out there if that works for you that's great Uh, or you can go a little more general and be a little more invested in the like business side of marketing rather than just the technical side of marketing and that's wonderful too but if you were really energized by working in the tech being in the platforms that being your day-to-day then consulting is a, a great and very natural next step that's where you can go to still do the parts of your job that you love but get that recognition and expertise that you're really looking for.
2: I think like for me at my first company is definitely where I hit that ceiling or wall, Justin, that you were talking about, or just felt like I couldn't go any further. And from there, I jumped to an enterprise company where very quickly, if you want to get promoted or recognition or do well, it's a management track. And not only did I find myself on this management track that I thought maybe I wanted to be on and then was like, Oh, wait, do I want to have my own family? I have my own team at home that I have to kind of manage like this is a lot. I loved being in the technology. And that's just not what a manager is. It's so strange to me that like, corporate's like, you're good at your job. Do you want to manage people? You're so good at your job. Let's have you stop doing anything that you're good at and instead manage a 22 year old. It was very strange. And then like, you know, there were some parts I think of the team or the operation that struggled because like, I wasn't doing the good job that I was doing anymore. And you can't just transfer knowledge in some ways. You know, I can teach them how to do something, but I've said this before, I can teach you how to do it, but I can't teach you to love it. And if you don't like love your tech job, you're going to be like sludging through it rather than like knocking it out. So that's where I thought like consulting was like, oh, cool, like I I can get paid more money for doing the job that I want to do.
0: And that was my experience too. Like I started managing people at 27, But I still had so much to learn about my craft before I felt, you know, and some people are just born managers and they want to live up there and just orchestrate people and strategies. But I'm not that person. Like I'm really good at coaching people who, like I've been there before and like I can help you grow in that same way. But I feel like I need to have a base of my own confidence to rest on. I didn't have that, frankly, at that time. And so where else are you going to go? The companies don't create those pathways for people, to your point. And so I think if you're someone listening out there who is feeling that, probably, like, oh, I got to grow, but I have to be a management. This is what I actually love doing. Like, you know that in your heart. Consulting is a fantastic place where you feel like, oh, the thing that I love doing and the thing that is winning is actually a line. Whereas quite often I speak to managers who struggle. They're like, oh, I'm just like two hands on and they're not managing enough. And now they're failing for doing the thing that they're good at.
1: Yeah, we've all had enough bad managers to be a good manager. That's the millennial experience. At least I'm a good manager because I had so many bad managers. I know what not to do. And I know what I needed to feel supported in that kind of moment.
2: I don't necessarily know what to do, but I know what not to do.
1: <laughs> but yes, I totally agree with you. Consulting is a great career path if that's where you're headed. It's funny. I was actually just talking to someone this morning that was looking for some someone that reached out to me on LinkedIn was like looking for some career guidance and mentorship. And I told her the same thing about consulting and thinking about where you are right now and what about your job energizes you and excites you and what does't, and like doubling down on the things that bring you joy because your career is long. you know she's like twenty seven years old, like you've got like probably a good thirty more years of doing this at least you gotta be excited about what you're doing, not to say you can't make a pivot at some point, but try to be a little intentional about where you're investing your time.
0: I want to go back to the finding clients thing because I know, and I've heard other people say like, yeah, it's just my network, it just appears, but really. All right, I'm gonna be a consultant. Good news, everyone! I founded, you know, Acme Consulting, and I am available for business. Like, do people just slide into your DMs? Like, I'm thinking of the potential listener with the feeling of trepidation of becoming independent, and like, what am I actually going to do? How does it actually manifest in your life?
1: First of all, I'm not your financial advisor, nor am I your accountant. So you just got to make a decision you can live with and hire real professionals to give you information. But first, I would say you need to have enough savings on hand that. If the work dries up or it doesn't pan out the way that you're expecting, you're not going to like have your house repossessed. So let's just start there as a good best practice. Okay, you'd have some savings. That comes with some inherent privilege. Just that's a good, I would not do this without that. Secondly, if you are feeling that kind of trepidation and you already have a full-time job, I would start by trying to take on clients while you are still in your full-time job, as long as that's something that your life can support. If you can like put some feelers out there with people you used to work with, It doesn't have to be, like, I don't really love the idea of going back to actual companies that you used to work at and being like, hey, I don't work with you. I don't work here anymore, but do you still want to work with me, like, a little bit sometimes? Usually, for me, I left those companies for a reason. I'm not interested in them becoming my client. But very often, I have had old managers, old colleagues that I really enjoyed working with that I've moved on to other companies that are familiar with my work, that trust me, that I would feel comfortable reaching out to and saying, hey, I am thinking about Uh, starting a consulting practice. I'm looking for some moonlighting work. I just need like five hours a week. This is my bill rate. Is that something that you guys could use some help with right now? You would be honestly surprised at the response you were likely to get from that. People are like, actually, yes, we have this thing. Can you? Whatever. Like there are plenty of people out there. If you have been doing this, if you have been in your career long enough to have a modest network, I'm sure you can rattle off at least three or four people that you would feel comfortable reaching out to. And that's where I would start.
0: You know, everyone's situation is different, but a little bit of short term pain in terms of your evenings and weekends to have a, not be starting from a cold start, you know, on day one.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would certainly be terrifying. And some people are just really comfortable taking a big swing like that and more power to you. I'm not. I wouldn't. <laughs> I would wait. I would make sure I had enough cash on hand and I would at least have one or two clients lined up before I actually quit my full time gig.
0: Well, if there's anything nice that can be said about the layoff bloodbath that's become the new normal, unfortunately, in tech industry, is that I've seen that it's pushed a lot of really good people into taking the plunge. I think because it's kind of like, nothing to lose now. I don't have a job. I have maybe a few months of cushion because I've gotten some severance, and it's really hard to find jobs. So it's like, the universe is actually pushed. Like I've seen a lot of really senior people go this direction now.
1: Absolutely. And- by the same token, all these companies that are doing these huge layoffs, they're losing headcount, but the work is not gone. And it is often much easier for them to secure budget for fractional support, a part-time consultant, even something like 20, 30, 40 hours a month than it is for them to keep a senior marketing operations manager on staff. They can't afford to do that, but they still need this. So if there are consultants flooding the marketplace, but there's plenty of work out there too for the same reason.
0: For some reason, it's considered a smart management decision to replace FTEs with consultants at a higher billable rate I know you're saving money on benefits and health insurance but still replacing someone who knows your business day in day out owns it to someone who doesn't
1: I mean I even tell prospects that I'm talking to and clients that are working with us like you know this is not in my best interest to say this but if you get headcount you should take it like headcount is hard to come by and it's in many ways, going to be more helpful to have a full-time employee than it is to have a consultant that's with you part-time. Depends on what your needs are, but a lot of these companies are working with no one in marketing apps. Even large companies will have like have gone from a team of five or six in marketing apps to one. And that's hard to have one person that's managing all of the business. As a consultant, you still need a business stakeholder that's passing you requirements and helping you understand what the business needs are and where your priorities should be. It is short-sighted. We don't need a team anymore.
0: Business will just run itself.
1: It's just going to be fine. I mean, I think what we are going to see is right now we have plenty of work because all the layoffs are happening and they still need something and some people are bringing consultants. In the next two or three years, I imagine we're going to have plenty of work from all of the tech debt that has been accrued during this time when everyone was being forced to run with a team that was way too lean to do what they
0: needed to do. The bigger projects are coming back and cleaning up the mess. That'll be interesting to see if that plays out. So we've moved a little bit into the how you connect with the clients, and I think a lot of people starting out, they're like, all right, this is my hourly rate, and you it may fall by default into sort of like a time and material model. Like, okay, I'll work this number of hours, and then I'll bill you at the end of the month or whatever, and, and you can end up like 60 days out from your money that way. So it doesn't seem like it actually is the smartest way. There are a number of different, there's projects, like fixed projects, there's retainers. There, how do you think about it? and How do you, again, not being financial advisors, but what are the models that you like the best in terms of the commercial arrangements with clients?
1: All of our consultants kind of have different preferences too. Lauren can probably speak to this a bit as well, but some people really prefer to work on like finite engagements, like little projects. They want to like have the variety and we take those on from time to time, of course, but we really prefer to work on retainer. Consultants tend to prefer to work on retainer. We typically structure it as a certain number of hours per month. So the like week over week flexibility is there, but monthly we consider it pretty use it or lose it. And we bill up front for the hours so that we get paid in time to make sure our consultants get paid in time and no one is waiting 60 days for their money whenever
2: we can help it. Yeah. I think if you foresee like a lot of time on meetings, the hourly is the way to go because you are literally spending your hours and where we've kind of gotten burnt a little bit for project-based work is when that project turns into something where people want to start meeting and it's like I just don't have the cycles to sit here all week but I can you know knock out your project like in five hours on a Friday
1: right I'm like a little burned on projects right now because we've had enough that have like scope creeped to a place where it was not entirely profitable (laughs) anymore and I'm just like no We will scope this work that you need to be done, but I'm going to give it to you as we will work on this for 40 hours a month for three months or whatever it is. And we will very likely get this done in that amount of time. But we might not. I'm not promising anything. You're putting me in 10 hours a week of meetings, then this is going to be a different result.
0: And I honestly, that's where I got to as well, even at the bigger agency level, where I think by the time I left, we'd moved away from fixed bid projects entirely and we could still scope them that way. But the challenge was, You have to become so precise in everything in order to estimate it clearly and have safety and remove that element of risk. And people are still unhappy because then they're like, oh, sorry, we can't attend your meeting like what you said. So it is way better to be like, here's the hours. These hours represent this project and I will spec it out in detail so that you feel the confidence that I've understood your needs and you're going to get what you want. But it's still at the end of the day it's it's ours. It's
1: a win for the client too, right? Like they have more flexibility. I, it's how I talk to people about it all the time. Like you were telling me right now while we are scoping this that you have reached out to me because you have this specific need and that is what you want us to work on. That's great. That's how we'll scope it. But by the time the ink dries and we have a consultant onboarded and you're ready to roll, like who knows what's going to change with your business. You might have something else that's way more pressing and now you have access to this expert who can help you with it and a flexible amount of hours to do it. I think it's really a win for everybody. And to your point about the scoping, you are either spending so much time doing the scoping work for free to get it precise enough to have it accurate, or you're not, in which case you're inflating the price of the project to hopefully not eat it. So the client's paying more for the work overall, or you're just getting it wrong, you know, and you're taking a loss on it. Like those are not winning scenarios for anybody.
0: What do you folks think about the fractional model? You know, all of a sudden everybody's a fractional something or other. Do you do fractional? What do you think about?
1: Fractional is just a
2: fancy word for a consultant working on a retainer. That's all it is. Part-time. Or part-time for several, I guess. If you're planning on having more than one client, then I guess then you're fractional. Otherwise, you're just working part-time.
1: No, I mean, I think fractional is just business talk for part-time because part-time makes you think you're working at an ice cream parlor. Like Fractional is just, this is
2: either not my only gig or not something I do full-time. Like, we're all fractional. Like, I'm a fractional mom, I guess. That sounds terrible. Part time mom, because I'm working right now. I'm a fractional podcast
0: host. Fractional grocery checkout clerk. I don't work part time. I just do it fractionally.
2: Yeah, you work at the market as a checkout girl. I do self checkout, so I'm a fractional
1: grocery checkout person.
0: I mean, it does seem to be more associated with like an executive role, somebody who's at a more senior level.
2: Well, Sydney, we use the term fractional for some of our teams, like we'll build you a fractional team. How would you describe that? Yes, it is fancy talk for a team of part-time consultants.
1: (laughs) Like we build like a fractional MOPs team. We've done this for several clients now. Anytime we're staffing more than one consultant together on a project, usually different types of consultants or the scope of work is such that it really requires more than one consultant to fulfill it, even if they're really the same kind of consultant. We call those fractional teams. Like this is your, you're not hiring a full you know, five person marketing ops team. That's not in the budget right now. You don't have the headcount for it. So you have a fractional marketing ops team. We're going to give you seven part-time marketing ops consultants, some campaign ops people, project manager, Marketo admins, data pipeline engineer, like all the different things that you need that you cannot afford to take on full-time headcount for. You still need this level of expertise. You still need this type of specialist and we have it for you.
0: Fractional. So it is jargony, but it sort of does mean something. And I I think you just touched as well on one of the challenges of being truly independent. If you have a certain skill set and all of a sudden you have a, a job or a contract that maybe you're not a Salesforce Apex developer, but you need a little bit of that, now you've got to almost become the contractor and bring that together. Now, another curiosity, I guess, about the team of Indies approach, one of the big things with an agency, at least as you're scaling it, I'm sure you've seen this too, is it's really hard to scale the quality of the people. Like maybe you have Edward and Sydney and they're rock stars, and then you add people, you know, E, F, and G, and they're good, but maybe they're not as good, or they're, you know, you start experiencing this unevenness and you're growing. And that is where I've seen a lot of growing pains, where all of a sudden you're not getting the same results as you were with your core a players that you started and now you have to invest a lot of work in like training process guardrails to scale that consistency with a team of indies like you said you're working with people that are pretty well established now are you just relying on that you know these are people that already know what they're doing or how do you deal with the fact that like Courtney does things a little bit one way and Jep does things a little bit the other way and and it's not totally homogenized
1: yeah, I mean, that's just not really our model, right? Like that's certainly the Percuto model is definitely the Atumos model. Like, this is the Atumos framework. This is how we do things. It is all very homogenous. doesn't matter what consultant you get. You can expect the exact same experience. That's not what this is. We scale differently and in many ways easier because of that. All of our consultants are experts because they've been doing this for a long time. Like I said, we don't hire junior consultants. We don't hire people. Well, frankly, we don't hire anybody, but we don't work with junior consultants. We don't work with people who are still learning the ropes and require a lot of training. Like these are people that are also doing this on their own. So to that same token, Courtney and Jeff are great examples. We don't have an exclusive relationship with them either. They have their own businesses. They both take some amount of work with Emmy, but also take work outside of Emmy. And that's completely fine. I mean, frankly, they're staking their own reputations on the work that they're doing, even when it's an Emmy client. So I don't have that kind of concern about the level of service they're receiving. And the idea, at least, is we are providing them with a level of support that they don't get with work that they're taking on their own or that they haven't gotten before they joined Emmy Collective, which makes it only easier for them to be able to provide a high level of service for our clients. That was actually the when Lauren and I were in Florida and we were doing our very beginning vision quest slash co-founder speed dating Um, that was the biggest thing that we came up with was you know if we work with good people that we know that we can trust to provide a high quality of service for our clients and we take care of them meaning we pay them as much as we possibly can like we run on very thin margins because we prioritize paying our consultants as much as we possibly can we make sure that they feel supported. We are not taking on clients that we think are going to be shitty. It is not like take any client in the name of making a quick buck. If something seems like it's not going to be a good situation, we are done. Uh, they have an escalation point. If something is not going well, like I can step in on any client and help them. In that case, like that's how we ensure that our clients are getting the best possible service. And you know, people often ask me this in sales cycles too, like, "Oh, well." Give me a few examples that I can interview of like consultants that I could maybe work with. Who do you have on your roster that's available right now? We don't do that either. Our relationship with the client is with all of us. And while this has never happened, if someone is working with one of our consultants and it is just not a good match for whatever reason, actually this happened one one time. If it's not a good match for whatever reason, then we will pull someone else in and make sure that they're getting the level of service that they signed up for. So it's just entirely different. Like we're not selling an Emmy framework and ME model, but it also means that we're able to scale much more flexibly. We don't have to like do that calculus that I remember doing at Tumos, and I'm sure you did it for Kudo, like, oh, well, we just have to make sure we sign at least these two if we're going to be able to hire someone. But if only one signs, then we can hire someone. But at a lower rate, it's going to be more junior. They will have more training that will take up this person's time. We don't have to do any of that. We're not taking on any overhead until there's actually work for them, which means that we can have what we have, which is a really beautiful stacked bench of some of the best people that work in marketing ops. And we can never lay off anybody. No one works here anyway.
0: They're not relying just on you as their only iron in the fire, so to speak. You mentioned a little bit about not having terrible clients. The client management is a huge part of being good consultant. And you you mentioned also about the skills of being a consultant. I think it's really worth emphasizing that business of consulting is a skill set all its own regardless of the subject like you can be a mops expert a platform expert and not a great consultant if you don't have those those skills and, and one of those skills there's a bunch of them but one of them certainly is like client management and so how do you keep things on an even kill Because great clients i know great clients it's like life is wonderful one bad client in the mix and life can stop being as wonderful pretty quickly so how do you think about that?
1: We try to have boundaries with our clients as much as possible in the same way that we prioritize taking care of our consultants so that we trust that they will provide a high level of service for our clients. If they are experiencing a bad client situation, we service the escalation point that they can come to and work through it with them. Oftentimes, it's like resetting expectations with the consultant about what this was. And you're telling me that this is not a good experience for you. Then maybe it's because we didn't scope this properly or they actually have a certain type of need that you do not have and this wasn't a good match like who can I bring in to support you to make this a little bit easier like identify what the pain is if it is that the client is being unreasonable in any way I am very happy to step in and say point back to our original scope this is not realistic this is not reasonable this is what we agreed to and this is what we're able to commit to and if that's going to be a problem then we can have more discussions about it we very rarely run into this but of course you're absolutely correct that a good client is great and a bad client can absolutely tank your quarter, take up so much of your time and emotional bandwidth. It takes all my spoons to deal with a bad client. So we try to suss those out up front if we can. And we absolutely have like a a client block list of people we will not work with again.
0: There's like toxic clients, which I think we can all agree, avoid, avoid, avoid. And then there's just like, there's people that are dysfunctional. There's businesses that it's harder to work with. Obviously, each consultant has their own thing. But how do you think about, you're not a bad client. You just need help so that this works well. What are those things, if anything?
1: Often they need more support. <laughs> you know, it's Often a client is feeling like they aren't getting what they need because they did not sign up for enough of what they need. I remember I had actually a situation early in my career at Tumos as one of my very first clients. Things were just not going well and I was so inexperienced and I was so scared. It's like, oh my gosh, I really messed up. I'm going to get fired. I don't know what's happening. And then they ended up turning it into like quadrupling the size of the contract. It's like, oh, it was not that I did bad. It was just that they need a lot more help than what they have right now. They are in a bad situation and that's why this feels bad. So often that's the case there are also instances where a project is just really off rails because of other things in the business that are not part of us and we don't really have influence over and our stakeholder doesn't really have any influence over those are the best bonding moments for a consultant and a client you know they, you guys are on the same team against the big bad rest of the business and we've been in those situations too like for those we try to be as flexible as we can with the client to make sure that they are getting what they need and what they paid for but we also like defend the boundaries of our consultants as much as we possibly can. We're not trying to put anyone in an unfair situation.
0: Sometimes I've found it's just as simple as a process, like, all right, how about for every task that you want, like you fill out this form or create this ticket in the system instead of just like emailing us willy nilly all the time and creating a lot of noise and a lot of chaos. And sometimes people are really grateful for that. Like they were actually craving Kind of like a toddler, like sometimes they crave that order and structure, even though they're like, ah, they're crazy. But actually clients are like toddlers and half joking, not joking, but no, but you, you put that in play and feel like, ah, actually this does feel better.
1: Yeah. I provided similar direction to our consultants before. I actually also had an experience of crying myself like this many years ago when I was at a Tumos that they just really expected real time response. They wanted to be able to Slack me and me respond right away. And if it was an hour or two hours before I got back to them, then they were unhappy. So I set like a daily 30 minute office hours for them. And it was like, you hold your questions to this time and I will always be available for you. And you know what? Most of the time they figured out the questions on their own before the office hours came, and they did not need to slack me throughout the day to answer every little question that they had.
0: Little small things that just mitigate those behaviors that make life hard and, uh, and make things easier. I want to turn to one last topic before we depart. I guess we can tie it in to the theme of this episode around kind of like word of mouth and marketing. But it's your very interesting booth experience at Mopsa because you and Lauren did something that I've never seen anybody do before, which is give people real permanent ink tattoos at your booth at Mopsapalooza. And it was not only was it the talk of the town and the talk of LinkedIn, but I just Literally multiple times. I was like, Am I being made a fool of that I'm actually believing this? I was waiting for the reveal where it's like, no, no, they're just stickers. They're just stickers. But no, they were real honest to goodness ink tattoos. How and why did this come about?
1: Well, the why, Justin, was exactly what you are demonstrating right now, is that it has broken your brain and you will never forget it. <laughs> the hell is the way Lauren and I's partnership works is Lauren has about 80 ideas a month and of them are crazy. And my job is to filter through and identify the diamonds in the rough that are something we should run with. We had Emily Poulton on our podcast last year and she told us a story about going to a conference at, I think it was when she was at Revenue Pulse. And it wasn't Marketo Summit, it was some other conference. And her and a bunch of her coworkers went to a tattoo parlor in the evening and all got tattoos. And we were like, oh, that's so crazy. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you got tattoos with your coworkers. And Lauren later texted me and was like, what if we threw a tattoo party at Mopsa We had already talked to Mike that we were going to sponsor, but we hadn't really figured out what we wanted to do. To be perfectly honest, we told him we absolutely did not want a booth because we did not want to have to staff a booth. That bamboozled us. But we like, let's figure out something that would be really fun and interesting that like we would have a good time doing. She said, what if we threw a tattoo party? And then she said, what if we gave people tattoos in our booth? And I said, no, this is a thing people do because there are tattoo conventions where that's the whole convention. The whole expo hall is just different tattoo artists with a booth that are doing tattoos in the booth. So I know this is possible. And Julie James, Jules James, is one of our consultants. And her and her husband own a tattoo parlor in Texas. And I said, I'm just gonna ask Jules. She's probably gonna say no. Jay is her husband as the tattoo artist. He's incredibly talented. He does a lot of like very detailed custom, like fine line work, like a flash tattoo event is very much beneath him. So I'm sure they will be like interesting idea, but no thank you. But I slacked Jules and she was like, Hell yeah, (laughs) that sounds incredible. So she immediately started looking into all of the licensing stuff that we would need for California, which was extensive. I said, don't spend any more time on this because I'm sure Mike Rizzo is going to say no. So I slacked Mike and I said, hey, Mike, can we do a flash tattoo booth at Mopsapalooza? And he said, sure. And I said, great, thanks. So we went full steam ahead organizing the paperwork. As I mentioned, it was a lot. There was insurance. There were event permits. Jay is a licensed tattoo artist, but he's licensed in Texas, and the rules are different state by state and county by county. So he had to get a travel license, and he had to get like a blood pathogen certification for Orange County. It was just no end to the PP work on this. And then a couple weeks later, I slacked Mike and I said, "Hey, Mike, the." Health department needs to know that our booth will have access to a sink with running hot water without going through any doors. Is there anywhere in the expo hall or anywhere in a nearby space where that would be true? And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, the tattoo booth, Mike, the tattoos from our supplies. And he said, real tattoos? I said, yeah, man, that's what a flash tattoo booth is. And he was like, I thought you meant stickers and I said, oh, stickers are boring. We're doing real tattoos with needles and blood in the health department. And he was like, this poor man, he was like, I cannot put any money into this. And I was like, I'm not asking you to." He was like, okay, can I get a tattoo that I want to get? And I was like, absolutely. And he was like, okay. I do not have anywhere that you can get a sink. So anyway, we had to buy a pop-up sink. It was the whole thing. We had to buy a massage table. (laughs) But we also, in order to get licensed to do it, we had to have an on-site inspection of our booth, which meant that we would not actually know for sure if we would be able to do the tattoo booth until the conference already started. Because the conference started Sunday evening. The health department, of course, closed on Mondays, or on Sundays, so they were coming first thing in the morning, Monday morning, and... I, two weeks out from the event, was like, there's no way that we're going to get approved to do this. There's just no way. We did not really even advertise that we were doing this for that exact reason. It would be like kind of embarrassing if we were like, come to our booth, everyone, and get a tattoo. And then we're like, oh, just kidding. We failed the health inspections. (laughs) So we didn't really talk about it. And I started making friendship bracelets. I was like, we got to have something. We're going to have a booth now. We got to have a booth giveaway. So I'm stringing together friendship bracelets with Mop's words on them. So we have something in the booth where the tattoo idea fails. And then I was standing in the booth Monday morning, 9 a.m. with Jay, our tattoo artist, Jules, and the health inspector. And he is just signing out paperwork. And I was like, you are joking. We are going to tattoo real human beings <laughs> at this conference right now. And in the end, we tattooed about 10% of the attendees of the event, including Mike and Mike's sister and Mike's dad. It was very exciting. Most people were very shocked. And the reaction that you were having of, certainly this is not a real tattoo, many people had, including and up until the tattoo artist put a needle on their skin, we had several people who were sitting on the massage table talking to jay and would ask him so how long is this going to last and he would go forever and they were like oh it's a real tattoo he said yes do you still want to do it and they would be like yeah and they did So that was our tattoo booth story. Was there any cutesy tie back to Emmy? No, it was just a kind of reckless and really fun thing that we did that was very memorable.
0: I mean, I think the tie back to Emmy is not that your brand is reckless, but the fun, the unique, unconventional. And I think it goes to show what you folks are doing as an outside observer, at least, is uh, what would we enjoy? What would be fun? And I think that's just so important in marketing in, in general. Like, what would I actually find interesting? getting out of your own head. These are the best practices. And these are the 10 tips for running a good trade show and just doing something that's actually cool and unique. And you could have an events team of 30 people that wouldn't think of something that interesting.
1: Oh Well, we had many events teams that approached us and we're like, so is this what you do? Do you do tattoo booths? Can we hire you to do a tattoo booth? Absolutely not. No way. <laughs> you have any idea how much work this was? And it is completely different for every county and every venue. So no.
0: There's a good startup out there for somebody who who's like, I'm going to start up a trade show tattoo service that like navigates all that. So there you go. You just gave a gift to someone.
1: Well, thank you for your kind words. And you're correct that like our, our shtick is if we're not having a good time, then this is not worth doing. And I just want to add one more thing, which is that in that same spirit this year, we are planning to host pop-up parties all across the US. Our first one is in New York on February 29th. We are trying to make it like a networking event that is not a networking event because networking events generally suck. It's like the fun part of going to a conference or an event where you just get to like go and have an open bar and hang out with your work friends. That's what this is. So we're calling it a not working party. It's called business casual. But yes, in New York, this one's February 29th, sponsored by Stencil and Inflection. Uh, if anyone out there, if this airs before then, then I, I hope, hope to see it there. there. Uh, but if not, then let us know what city we should go to next.
0: Well, huge fan of what you both are doing. Always uh, great fun to chat and we'll continue to watch your growth and success uh, happily. Thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Thanks, Justin.
0: Hey everyone! I want to invite you over to the RevOps FM Substack community, where you can sign up to get rough transcripts, show notes, longer form articles, and other bonus content. Just head over to revops.fm/slash subscribe to get free access. I'd also love to know what you thought of the episode and to hear suggestions for topics you want to learn about. Feel free to leave a comment on Substack or send me an email at justin@revops.fm. Thanks for listening.